How many of you like studying science class? Johnny, you like science? Johanna, you like science? All right, well, I've got a little fact from science class. You know, I always enjoyed studying science. Perhaps one of my favorite classes was biology class. Studying living things. It's just incredible. Now, have you ever thought, Johnny, that scientists are kind of funny people? No, no, maybe you are a scientist. Maybe that's why you think that. I don't know. You know, scientists kind of think that they're a lot smarter than the rest of us for some reason. And of course, they always tell us things that are pretty hard to believe. Now, who can tell me what a fruit is? Anyone? Anything that has seeds in it. Anything that has seeds in it. There you go. I like that. Well, when I think of a fruit, I think of something that grows on a plant, right? Usually it's soft, usually it's sweet and juicy, and as Florence said, it has seeds in it. That's what makes it a fruit. Now, botanists botanists are a particular type of scientist who study plants. Now, a botanist will tell you that a fruit comes from the ovary of the plant. That's the little round part just under the blossom, just under the flower, and that's where a true fruit comes from, from that little ovary. Now, in culinary arts, we have a little bit of a different definition of fruit. Now, of course, cherries and blueberries and bananas, these are all fruits. We all agree these are fruits, but so are bean pods, so are corn kernels, so are tomatoes, and so is wheat. Wheat is also a fruit, according to a botanist. But there are some things that we've always called fruits that I'm told are not true fruits. Did you know that strawberries, pineapples, figs, apples, and pears are not true fruits? Did you know that? I didn't know that for a long time. I read that not long ago, and it blew my mind. An apple's not a fruit? Well, of course, it is a fruit in the, in the food definition of fruits, but by the terms that a botanist uses, an apple doesn't come entirely from the little ovary under the flower. It, it's got fleshy parts of the other... The fleshy part of the apple comes from other parts of the plant. Same with strawberries. Same with the ones I'm, I mentioned. We call these false fruits. Or the, some of the more modern term is an accessory fruit because it, it comes from other parts of the plant. Now, of course, it's a pretty technical difference. But if you want to be particular, if you want to go by the botanical definition, a strawberry pineapple upside-down cake doesn't actually have any fruit in it. But chili beans and tomatoes might as well be called a fruit salad. (laughs) Well, that's a bit of interesting trivia, I suppose. But what does this have to do with the Bible? I don't ever hear Jesus talking about false fruits. Well, maybe he did in a way, but he did warn us about false teachers, false teachings, and those who teach them. In Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, which Jimmy just read for us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. You will know them, how? By their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorn bushes or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So my question for you today is, how can you tell the genuine from the fake? How can you tell the good from the bad? Last week, we talked a lot about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart and to all of us as Christians, the subject of salvation, justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, who can tell me? I told you last week. Who can tell me what does justification mean? Just as if I'd never sinned. There you go. Someone was listening. Thank you. Just as if I had never sinned. Now, that's the central theme of the Bible is the gospel. God's love for you and me, Jesus' death on the cross, it opens up the door of salvation for you and me. Now, just to review, just a minute, why do I need to be saved? What's so bad about our situation here? We talked about this last week. Just, this is just a very quick review. It's a matter of this horrible thing that we call sin. Sin, or evil. It's our choice to go contrary to God's will to break his law. And that choice has led us into a completely and utterly hopeless condition. We face nothing but certain death. And the Bible speaks of a judgment day in which every man, woman, and child will receive the just rewards of his or her deeds. So sin has made this huge rift between mankind and God. What we need is reconciliation. We need someone to bridge the gap because we cannot do it ourselves. What hope do we have? Who gives us hope? Jesus Christ. The only hope we have in our condition is through Jesus Christ. Isn't there a verse in the Bible somewhere that says God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world? Isn't there a verse in the Bible that says that somewhere? Who can tell me where that verse is? We have this idea, a lot of us, and myself included, have had this idea before, that that God the Father sits up stoically, perhaps, in heaven, angry with sin and sinners, and that Christ's sacrifice somehow appeases God's wrath and makes God love us again. Have you ever kind of had that idea or that concept? You don't have to raise your hand. Nothing could be further from the truth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what about that verse I asked you about a minute ago? No, none of you caught it. Or if you did, you didn't say you did. God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. Where's that verse? 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I quoted it wrong. I quoted it wrong. God did not reconcile himself to the world. God does not become reconciled to sin by the death of Jesus. God reconciles the world to himself by the eradication of sin. Jesus did not come in order to make God love us. Jesus came because God loved us. And through his grace, Christ brings us 
back to God. I'll dive into this a little more in a minute. But if I were to ask you this question, or if someone was to ask you out this question, how are you saved? What would be your answer? Well, you might turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We covered this last week. This is, again, review. For by grace you are saved through what? Through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? In my natural condition, as I am, I am lost. I face nothing but certain death, but the Bible gives me hope. Tell me, friends, is there anything you or I can do to, do to deserve to be saved? No. Is there anything I could do to make God like me and want to save me? No. Of course not. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Jesus makes me what everyone, just as if I'd never sinned. We call that justification. Now, this, here's another big word. We call that the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, what does imputed mean? Christ's righteousness, his sinless life, is credited to my account. I didn't do anything for it, but he credits it to my account. And when God looks at my record and your record, he sees not my sinfulness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It sounds too good to be true. Is it true? Yes, my friends, it's absolutely true. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the truth. There is no other way to heaven except through faith in Jesus Christ. So now I want to put a little bit of tension in your minds here. If it's so simple, if it's really that simple, why do we have so much trouble accepting it? Perhaps the answer lies in the question, the fact, that many of us simply don't understand what it means to be saved. Perhaps in a way, in some way, we don't even want to be saved. Hear me out, friends. Jesus made a few difficult statements regarding the judgment and salvation. One of those we find here in the same chapter in Matthew chapter 7, where we began. Matthew chapter 7, picking up in the, where we left off, verse 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow, I thought we were just talking about grace. Aren't we saved by faith? Now, how do we all of a sudden start talking about works of the law and lawlessness and people who, get this, friends, there's going to be people who come to the judgment, who come to the very end and are surprised. They thought 
that they were in the right camp. They were claim they were saying Jesus' name. And they come to the very end. And the Lord says, I never knew you. That's a solemn, sobering thought, friends. And that and that thought is a thought that has troubled Christians for millennia. If we're saved by faith, why do we have all of this about lawlessness? Are we saved by faith? Yes, friends, we are saved by faith. But just like there can be true fruits and false fruits in that little example I gave at the beginning, the Bible teaches that we can have a false kind of faith. A kind of faith that's not a saving faith. Nowhere is this more clear than in the the epistle of James. Turn with me to James chapter 2. We'll take a few verses from there. James chapter 2 and in verse 19. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Devils believe? Really? Of course they do. Devils are demons are fallen angels. They were with God in heaven. Do you think there's a demon in this earth that doesn't believe God exists? No, of course not. Satan himself, he's not denying that God exists. Do you believe that God exists? Of course. Is that enough to save you, to simply believe in the fact? No, my friends. That is the point that James is making here. Verse 20. Do you know, O foolish man, that that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted, some translations say imputed to him, accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Wow, if that doesn't blow your mind. <laughs> Paul says we're saved by faith, not by works. And James says you're justified by works and not by faith only. So how do you reconcile these two things? Does, does Paul and James teach diff- two different gospels? If one is right, well, the other one must be wrong, right? This discussion has plagued Christians for millennia. It's still at the heart of some of the most heated debates within Christendom, and dare I say, even within Adventism. Friends, the answer to this dilemma between faith and works, between law and grace, is found in an understanding of the nature and the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of Jesus' mission to this earth. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Let's go back to the beginning. The very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. This is the story of the birth of Jesus. The angel is explaining to Joseph the purpose of this child's mission. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. And she, Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Catch these last few words. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the Savior, 
a savior from what? A savior from the world? A savior from bad things happening? A savior from judgment? A savior from their sins. Notice too, and I don't want to get sidetracked on this. There's so much meaning in this verse. We could spend the rest of the day talking about this one verse. Jesus didn't come to save us from death. He didn't come to save us from the penalty of sin. He came to save us from sin itself. And notice too, the verse doesn't say Adam's sin. It's plural in the sense of sins. That is, and it's possessive in the sense that it is our sins, not someone else's sins, but our own sins. Paul says in Romans, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The implication, of course, is that we were sinners. But what are we now? Does Jesus save and still leave us in the same condition as we were before we were saved? I'm going to give you a lot of verses. You can turn with me or write them down if you want. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, or sodomites, or thieves, or covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, all of these things, it's said in a negative sense, but all of these things are a matter of breaking God's law. So those who break God's law will not inherit the kingdom of God, it says, and such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You see, friends, we've talked a lot about this concept of justification. Just as if I'd never sinned. But here's another word. It's another big word, but it's here and it's found in many places in the Bible. Sanctified. Sanctification. In justification, God's word declares you and me to be righteous. Christ imputes his righteousness to you and me. It's credited to our account. In sanctification, Christ actually makes us righteous. His word works a change in our hearts. In sanctification, Christ's righteousness is imparted. I'm, I'm using big words here, and if you've never heard these words before, go home and, and look them up, study it. I'm giving you some homework now. Imputed, imparted. Justification, sanctification. In sanctification, Christ is actually making us righteous. We call it a change of heart. Justification happens in a moment. Sanctification is a process. It's a continual process. It, I like to look at it as a relationship. It's not something that happened in the past as justification, perhaps. Nor is it something, and, and, and a, lot, a lot of people will, will get off on this, is it, nor is sanctification something that we look forward to in the future. Sanctification is something that I have experienced in the past, that I continue to experience now and will continue to experience in the future. It's a relationship. Ezekiel 
chapter 36, gives us a picture of the kind of sanctification that God has in store for us. And this is Old Testament even. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. God is speaking here. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. That's justification. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Again, that's still justification, okay? Verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Friends, this is exactly what Jesus described to Nicodemus. In that same chapter where we have that that well-known verse, the most well-known verse in all the Bible, John chapter 3, Jesus also says, you must be born again. See, so many people have a misconception of what it means to be a Christian. On the one hand, some people have the idea that Christianity is about behavior modification. If I just keep trying, if I just try harder, if I just keep enough rules, then you'll go to heaven. Okay? On the other hand, there are people who see Christianity as a free pass to do whatever I jolly well want to do. But friends, Christianity is neither one of those things. Both of those extremes entirely miss the point. The beauty of the gospel is found right here in Ezekiel 36. The beauty of the gospel is a changed heart and a changed life. It's not about, oh, I've got to give up sin. It's about praise God. He has come to deliver me and you from the power of sin. Sin no longer has to have a stranglehold on your life. Sin does not do anything for you. You do not want sin. God does not want sin to reign in your life. Jesus, our Savior, came not to save us in our sins, but to save us from our sins. When I look to Jesus, when I see what Jesus has done for me on the cross, the blood he shed and the love he gave, my heart is broken. The Holy Spirit touches my heart and Christ's blood forgives my sin. I get a clean slate, a new start. But more than that, I receive a new heart. In that moment, I am justified. And at that moment, I begin a new walk with Jesus. I begin the experience of sanctification. Sanctification isn't an event. It doesn't happen at one point in time. It's a relationship. It spans the entire course of your life. Friends, how do you know? How do you know if the experience that you have is the real deal? How do you know if it's a real fruit or if it's a false fruit?
Jesus gives us a very simple illustration in John chapter 15. He says to his disciples in John 15, starting in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abides in the vine, neither can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. How do we know if our faith is genuine? How do, if we, how do we know if our faith is of the kind that can save, by, by God's grace, that can grasp hold of Christ's salvation? Or if it is simply a false faith as those who, to whom Christ said, I never knew you. Even though we say, Lord, Lord. Friends, the answer is found in the fruit. In Galatians 5, we read two different lists of two different types of fruit. We don't like the first list very well. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, I'll paraphrase. Fruits of sin, fruits of impurity, fruits of selfishness, fruits of hatred, jealousy, and anger. These are the fruits of our natural and carnal heart. And these are the fruits that lead to death. In contrast, Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And he goes on to say, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Friends, I ask you today, I don't ask you to stare at yourself, but I want you to glance at yourself and ask yourself this question, what kind of fruit is my life bearing? Don't look around. Don't look at anyone else. Just glance at yourself. Is my life bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Or do I see in my life the fruit of my own selfishness? Am I keeping God's law? Or am I living in sin? If the answer to this question is selfishness and sin, then what is the solution? What do I need to do? Do I need to try a little bit harder to be a little more Christ-like? Do I need to focus more time and energy on my fruit-bearing? No, my friend. Go back to John chapter 15. Abide in me. We are only branches. If we're not bearing fruit, it's not a problem with the fruit. It's a problem with the root. It's a problem with that connection with Jesus Christ. Friends, so often we find ourselves in this cycle, and I'm speaking of myself. Ah, I did it again. I failed again. I'm not bearing fruit. I better focus more on bearing fruit. No, my friends, it's good to recognize when we're not bearing fruit. But when we recognize that, let us stop looking at ourselves and start looking to Jesus. 
reconnect with him. Say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. But I invite you to reconnect me with yourself, with the only source of power. Friend, look to Jesus. Believe him and trust him more. If your life isn't where you want it to be, just trust him more. Throw your life into his arms until your life and your will are lost in his will. And my friends, he will transform your life into his image. Friends, if you believe him, if you trust him, you can and you will have this experience. Friends, you'll never get to the place where you feel like you're perfect. Because the closer you come to Jesus, the more you realize your own imperfections. But don't look at yourself. Keep looking at him. Keep abiding in him. And let your life bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Then and only then, we will have no need to fear in the judgment. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Friend, do you desire to have this experience today and each and every day of your lives? Do you look at your life and you see in your life that I'm not bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Maybe I am sometimes, but not consistently. Friend, look to Jesus. Let him cover your life with his life. Let him surround you with his love. Be lost in him, and you will bear fruit. All loving Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. How can we thank you enough for your love and your gift, sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to come all the way to this earth? But thank you just as much for your gift of grace your grace and power that brings us out of that life of sin and all the way back to you. Lord, help us to experience this grace, this power in our lives today and each and every day is our prayer in Jesus' name. 